0: The art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult, made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King.
1: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self Reliance podcast. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to tell you about a new initiative that I've started that will allow you to take the art of self reliance further and apply the lessons into your life, along with a like minded community. I would love it if you would join us over at Primal Skills Tribe, that's with a Z.com. Membership is currently complimentary. But if you like and would like to support this podcast and help me keep the community free, there is a Patreon option as well. I hope to see you over there. And now let's dive into today's episode. In this episode, I speak to best selling author of In Praise of Slow, Carl Honori. Carl has been published in 35 languages and landed on the bestseller lists in many countries. His first three books show how slowing down can help you lead a richer, happier, and more productive life. In his latest book, he explores the many upsides of aging. In this episode, we discuss how to slow down, how to age better, and how to feel better about aging.
0: The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So, yeah, Cole, here's my
1: first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you?
2: What does that mean to me? It means so many different things. I suppose I'm a big believer in physical strength and being well in your body. And so I suppose my starting point on that checklist of what self-reliance means to me would mean being robust physically. And I think that's useful in physical circumstances. I think it's useful when you're not looking to fight or anything like that. You just simply, you radiate a kind of physical wellness and strength and solidity, I think. And you can can rest on that and build on it. So I suppose that's kind of the cornerstone of self-reliance is being well in your body, I think.
1: Well, that's kind of interesting that you say that because I always take the perspective of the embodied experience. And I guess that's what you're alluding to, right, is that when we talk about self-reliance, really what it comes down to is being comfortable with all of yourself. And that's every part of yourself and able to bring your entire self to whatever experience you may engage in.
2: Yeah. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to make a kind of Cartesian break and say it's all about the body. I mean, the, the mind is in there. I suppose you could stir in the spirit. Uh, you know, I think I think we we are at our best when we are comfortable in our own skin, right? When we're at ease with who we are, we know who we are and we know how we fit into the world. And part of that is how we fit into it physically, part of it's intellectually, emotionally, and all those other registers as well. So it's a whole package thing, I think.
1: No, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things I've been talking about lately and on a few of the episodes is this idea of the mind-body connection and not seeing the mind as separate to the body and actually that they work off each other. And it's important to understand that. I do think though that we tend to be in a culture that's very head laden you know, it 's all about cognition, it 's all about brain, you know, and the body seems to be have, is pretty much become neglected in some way. For most people, it's just a vehicle that gets them from point A to point B.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that we do live in a society that exists or forces us into the neck up where we 're just in, inside our heads, as you say, and we lose touch with our bodies. I just saw today actually a really horrifying report has come out about the general health of the population is looking at Britain. And it said that people in their 40s and 50s now are less healthy than people 20 years older than them were 20 years ago, right? So we've gone further and further into our heads and further and further away from our bodies, right? As we become more sedentary, less in tune with eating well, sleeping well, recharging our, our physical and emotional cells, and so on. So I I do think this divergence between mind and body is one of the great challenges we are facing in the early 21st century. And it it maps pretty neatly onto a lot of the work I do with the the benefits of slowing down. Because I think that when you get stuck in fast forward, those two things separate the the mind and the body. They They lose track of each other, they lose contact. And one of the main benefits and aims of slowing down and living at the right pace for you is bringing the mind and the body back together.
1: That's a really good segue. Let's talk about how to slow down because you, you know, you're just saying that you, you saw this statistic where people are really unhealthy today. Um, when we say slowing down, we don't mean sitting on a couch doing nothing, right?
2: No, I mean, d- definitely far from it. I mean, I'm not a, an extremist or a fundamentalist of slowness, but I love speed, right? <laughs> Faster is often better. We all know that, but, but not always. And that's really the key to this whole slow culture quake, slow with a capital S. It's about doing things at the right speed. So knowing that there are times when you wanna go fast, you wanna be in turbo mode, but there are also times to shift it down into a lower gear. And then it's about playing with all the different rhythms and paces and tempos in between. Musicians talk about the tempo giusto, right? The right tempo for each moment. And I think that's a a very useful lens to bring to whatever it is you're doing as you come to that moment thinking, how do I do this not as fast as possible, but as well as possible, a really simple idea, but a, a one that just is game changing, right? It revolutionizes everything you do from the way you eat, to the way you exercise, the way you talk
1: and think, work, make love, etc. So one of the things that we often talk about is this idea of if you're doing something slow, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And that's very much something that comes up a lot as as I'm a martial artist and when I'm teaching, that's something that I try to bring across to the students because everybody wants to go fast. But in the process of going fast, they either A, make lots of mistakes or B, miss the nuances. They don't see the deepness of what's possibly in front of them because they're just trying to get to the end.
2: Exactly. And I think that's a perfect metaphor for the folly of much of modern life, right, is that fast is superficial, you skim the surface, you move through so fast that nothing sticks, everything's a blur. And of course, one of the things you sacrifice on the altar of speed is memory. We don't remember stuff anymore because we're moving through each moment so quickly or we're in several moments at the same time. But as you say, when you slow down, you, you dive deep. You get down to the core, the heart of the matter. You get deep into the experience, you're immersed, you, you capture and savor. And register the nuances, the shades of gray, the different colors, the the different tones, and so on. You 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 live the moment fully, and I think that that that's a very useful way of thinking about fast and slow. And I I do think that I love that um, quote. It's one I often use myself. That slow is um, sort of what's it? Sort of, slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. I mean, that's a, a a wonderful summation of the slow philosophy. It's really not about sitting around like a couch potato, right? It's about choosing when to go fast. It's about moving through things with that smoothness. Right. And, and,
1: and whatever the pace is, if it's smooth, it's going to be, it's the right pace. Right. So what came to mind me mind there for a second was when you're talking about moving through this, moving through it through with elegance, I guess is another way to describe it. Right. It
2: is. Yeah. There's a kind of aesthetic side to this as well. I think that there's a, an elegance, there's a, 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 a stylishness. There's a, a, um, there's a beauty. doing things at the right pace and if you think i mean just widen it out and talk about uh the whole kind of style world if you think of the traditional gentleman right the kind of what is it that distinguishes a gentleman right he's never he's never in a rush right you know the people who are the most stylish the most elegant are never in a hurry they always have enough time and you see that in sports as well right you can take the fastest sports on the planet i'm an ice hockey player more people will understand football metaphors. So, you know, Lionel, Messi, Ronaldo, these are people who can destroy you with superhuman speed, but they never seem rushed, do they? They always have enough time and enough time might just be a fraction of a second, but it's enough time. Right. And that's the key here. It's not, they're not falling into speed, mindless speed, road runner rushing for the sake of it. they are going fast when the moment calls for it. And then, If the moment calls for stopping, pausing, stopping the whole game, putting your foot on the ball, taking stock and then going again, it's about that dance. It's when you have that dance between fast and slow and you're moving up and down the registers of speed, that's when the music and the magic happen in everything. There's a finesse to that, right? Yeah, that's another word for it as well. And I think that people who, who, who move through whatever it is they're doing at the right speed it is finesse, it's a kind of poetry, right? It's a softness, but not a weakness, right? It's, it's soft, smooth, all those things which, as I say them aloud, sound very feminine. But you know, in our kind of macho, often misogynistic culture, we regard the feminine as weak, but there's a whole lot of strength in the feminine, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, my wife's had two kids, and I tell you she's a lot tougher than I am when the push comes to shove and the chips are down. So I think that there is a kind of, yeah, I think you can talk about finesse, softness, smoothness, and, and, and celebrate those things, right? Put them on a, on a pedestal and, and say, let's, let's aspire to that, whatever gender or sex we are.
1: You know, when I read your work and I was thinking about that slow, I was thinking about people in my own life that I've, I've observed that have been able to deal with situations, in a way to describe it would be grace under fire. That's really what I saw them and what they were able to do. And as you said, it always seemed that their timing was perfect and they were never in a rush.
2: Yeah, grace under pressure. I mean, that's another way of thinking of it as well. That you know, you can be in an amazingly pressure cooker environment, and some people, you know, that old phrase from um, uh, Roger Kipling, right? For, if you can keep your head while all, those around you are losing theirs, I mean, that's the ultimate expression. I think of, of of grace, of elegance, of power, of strength, of wisdom, is to be able to keep a still core, a slow. Keep your keep a kind of slow, internal slowness while everything around you may be moving at a breathtaking, blurring speed. You've got that calm on the inside. And in fact, that, that reminds I me, mean, I'm obviously not as much of a martial arts person as you are, but I've done martial arts in my time. And, and that was one of the things I liked most about it was the idea that the stress on, on stillness, right? Sometimes, and often that internal stillness that, that brings you clarity, that brings you focus, that allows you to know exactly when To throw that punch or lift that kick and do it very quickly but you've it's almost like you've done the the slow homework the preparation the framing is slow and then when the moment comes when you really have to deliver at top speed you can do it and you hit it right on the bullseye right because
1: you've done the slow stuff first you've created the slow environment around it so i know oftentimes you know i'm assuming you probably like this too people don't like to give practical tips too much because they don't want to tell people how they should live their life. But I do think there's some value in looking at some practical ways to bring more slowness into your life. Do you have any ideas on, on what that could be in a general sense? If, if just somebody's listening to this and they go, okay, this sounds really great, great philosophy, I like what Carl's saying, but how would I apply that to my life? I mean, what, you know, it's one thing listening to something and saying, great idea. Another thing, you know, actually applying it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm not from the. I'm more from the show than show and tell. You think show and tell? I'm more from the show than tell school. But I know that people do like to be told, so I do have tips that I'm 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 very happy to dispense. And 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 there's a long list. But I mean, where would I start? I mean, I I think let's let's kind of spin off some of the stuff we've been talking about. You know, martial arts. Uh, you know, meditation. I think practicing acts of slowness, things that just by their very nature slow you down. So building into your schedule, some kind of activity that will inoculate you, vaccinate you against the virus of hurry, that just teaches you how to get into that lower group. So that could be, I mean, for some people, it could well be martial arts. For others, it might be gardening. It could be reading poetry or knitting or some meditation and breathing exercises. And you don't have to, you know, move to a Tibetan monastery and do these things for four hours a day. It's enough sometimes, you know, just four minutes or even, you know, a minute here or there just to try and build in those little stop points, those little moments of break, of reflection, of resetting your internal metronome. And, and I think that's, a, I find that hugely useful. and I know every, other people do as well. It's just picking some kind of activity, dropping it into the schedule here and there and, and using it as a break something that allows you to, to reboot yourself in a, in a slower way would be one, would be one suggestion. I mean, I'll, a couple of others, you know, this is more of a kind of uh, meta macro idea. One reason that we find ourselves turning every moment of the day into a race against the clock is that we're trying to do too much, right? We're just chronically overstuffing our schedules with stuff that's really by and large, not that important. <laughs> so a, a, a crucial step to slowing down and reconnecting with your inner tortoise is, is to stop and to ask yourself, what really matters to me? You know, what, what is really important to me? What am I, gonna, am I going to cherish having done six months from now looking back? And once you start looking at today through that longer term lens, you know, what's really gonna have made a mark and meant something to me down the road? you start to realize that so much of the stuff that you're packing your schedule with today and tomorrow is not that important. So, so start, you know, looking hard, thinking hard about what's what deserves a spot on your to-do list and let everything else go, right? You will not regret it. And and just as a final footnote on that thought, one technique I use and I find very helpful for other people I talk about a to-do list is to have a not to-do list. So move stuff off that to-do list today, put it on your not to-do list and just keep that not to-do list in a drawer somewhere or in, your, in an app somewhere on your phone and go back to it every once in a while because it's it's surprising and uplifting in a lot of ways it's a big relief to, to see six weeks four months later that something that today you thought i can't let this go it's it's too important i'll let people down four months later you don't even remember it right and and it kind of just puts that that longer term bigger picture perspective that allows us to get our head out of the trench of speed, looking up into the sunny uplands of slowness.
1: So this might seem counterintuitive to what we're talking about, but I do think there's some value in setting the intention, as you noted, to actually take time throughout the day to be slow. I mean, I think for some people, just because they are really busy, they will likely have to schedule in moments of slowness I know for myself that I've had to do that one of the things that I do amongst all the other things is I do a lot of training for a very well-known what can we say let me let me think of the best way to do this because I don't want to give away the company right but a very well-known airline in 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 Southeast Asia and I do a lot of training there it's a very intense day. It's, it's one session after the next and there are breaks within that time frame. And what I notice a lot of the students that I'm teaching, what they will do is go do things that are definitely not slowing down. If anything is speeding up, being on their phone, being on back on social media. And then I'm not surprised that when they come back into the class that they, as much as I try to be animated and it's a really interesting class, they start falling asleep. So what, I'm, what I've started suggesting to them and what I do is I take those moments of break to actually do something that isn't engaging myself in that way, that is actually slowing down, be it going for a walk or just taking the time to close my eyes and just center myself and be with my breath for 10 minutes. And I feel that coming back into the classroom, I feel far more energized. Where in the past when I wasn't doing that, you know, like most people do i end up drinking way too much coffee and that's never good for you.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I applaud you because you're doing exactly what the science tells us to do and what our hearts and minds tell us to do anecdotally, right? Is to is to make sure that a break is a proper break because too often now we just reach for because we're so marinated in 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 stimulation and distraction you take it away from us for even just two minutes and we don't rejoice and put up our feet and head for the slow hills, we panic and think, where's my phone? You know, what can I do? That's going to gee me up again, you know, keep me up on this, this adrenaline high. And, and of course that doesn't make sense in the long run. And it, it leads to people falling asleep in, in workshops today, but it also takes a deeper, more sinister toll on our minds and bodies in the longer run. So yeah, you, we, I think a big part of this slow revolution is, is relearning the lost art of rest, right? Like really resting, because so often now I think when we do get a moment of rest, we're on Netflix, right? Or we're buying something on Amazon, <laughs> or, you know, we're doing stuff that is not restful. So yeah, it's it's also about, you know, not all rest is created equal. And again, a big part of slowing down, in a, in a good way, is thinking about what sort of rest works for you and what sort of real what is real rest.
1: So, you know, building off that, when you look around today, and I know that you do a lot of speaking you do a lot of traveling, you're talking about the slow movement. But as you look around and you look at how society is today, what is your perception of how society is and where you think we're going? I mean, do you think that it's a good thing? Do you think it's positive with all these things that are happening, especially this kind of fixation on being attached to this social media environment that most people are? They're connected to the Internet. They're living in virtual worlds. What do you think is gonna be the consequence of that?
2: Well, I, I think that we're already, I mean, anytime a new technology comes along, it always takes time to work out how to get the most out of it, right? We, we tend to go overboard. And that's what's happened with, with information technology, and especially social media and so on. I think the pendulum has swung so far out to the extreme And and we, you know, the the research is all there that shows the toll this takes on our physical health, our relationships, our ability to focus and concentrate and think and all the stuff that we want to put into building a good life. So I, I think that we've kind of probably got to the end of that. And now you see so many examples of people pulling it back and looking for ways to put speed limits on the information superhighway, whether that's, you know, email free time slots for companies or uh, this, this new social ritual stacking. I don't know if that you've got that. Did you know this one in South Africa? If you've got that there, I mean, in London, New York, you get young people going out for a coffee together to Starbucks or something. They pile up their phones in the middle of the table in a stack. Whoever grabs the phone first to look at Instagram or TikTok pays the bill for everybody else. Right. And it's just a, it's just a fun way of saying, you know, we've got this moment here together. We'll never have this moment again why spoil it by trying to be in five other moments at the same time and and that's not burned out boomers who didn't grow up with screens coming up with stacking that's the digital natives themselves saying you know what we like a bit of TikTok and snapchat can be great fun but not all the time right so i i do think that the tectonic plates are shifting in, in, in a more hopeful way there and i think that we're going to going to turn this super tank around when it comes to tech overload still a long way to go right but i i do, I do think that we're, we're we're moving the right many of us are moving the right direction on, on that. But but if, if you want, in a bigger sense, beyond tech, I mean, I think, you know, I've been, I've been pre- crusading in, in for, for slow now for you know, nigh on 15 years. And I, I do think that we've come a long way. I think that the, the keynote of modern society is still acceleration, and we still worship speed. But I think that the slow countercurrent is much stronger than it ever was before, whether it's, you know, mindfulness and meditation in the business world, the slow travel movement, slow fashion, you know, it's, it's slow education all over the place. That idea has gained traction in a way that I would never have dared hope possible a few years ago. So I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist, but also kind of realistic at the same time. Final thought, if you, don't, if you don't mind my throwing it in here, given when we're talking now with COVID, I think that this has been a quite extraordinary, well, it clearly is an extraordinary moment. And I think it's making a lot of people reflect on questions of speed, pace, what matters, values, and meaning, and so on. And, you know, we've all now spent, most of us, three, four months polluting less, consuming less, probably working less, uh, doing less. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think many, and obviously this has been a tough time for everybody in lots of ways, and for some people it's been a total nightmare, but I think a lot of people have seen some silver linings here, right? You know, they're finding time to to rest more, to, to read more, to spend time with the people that they love and to be able to listen to them without being distracted by you know, the, the, the fact they've got a two hour commute to do or they have to look at their phone all the time. So I'm hopeful that we'll take some lessons out of this otherwise very dark moment. And one of those lessons will be that that you know, we're better when we don't
1: rush all the time. I was actually talking to a friend of mine, Frank uh, forensich And we were talking about this idea that, historically speaking, right, if you think about for the most of the time that we were on this planet, we were hunter-gatherers, for example. This kind of modern interpretation of our life is a very small moment in time in the history of humankind. And if we look back at the hunter-gatherers, as an example, sure there there were times when they were stressed out and had to deal with threats and so on, but they understood what it was to slow down. And there were lots of moments in their experience that they slowed down. I'm always, you know, maybe that, you know, maybe I speak beyond what this potentially could be and there's no research to prove what I'm saying, but I'm always taken by this idea where Carl Jung talked about the archetypes. And I feel that if you really listen closely to yourself, there is a longing to slow down. And it comes from that time, the hundreds of thousands of years that we were on the planet where we weren't living the way that we live now. It's almost encoded in our DNA. And I just talked to my own personal experience. When I was on the road, traveling all the time, jumping from one seminar to the next, I wasn't aware of how stressed out I really was until last year. Because of some life changes, I, I moved to Thailand and that's where I've ended up staying now. And I ended up in a, sleep, a sleepy uh, fishing village in the middle of nowhere. And I, this recognition of this background hum of anxiety that now suddenly became so evident where when I was in this kind of fast paced world, I wasn't even noticing it at all. And I noticed that it was there and it's taken some time to work through it and to get it to calm down and to move away. And I just realized how negative those experiences actually were for my overall health, and that it's not good for you psychologically and emotionally to be putting yourself under the pump all the time.
2: And not only negative, but also insidious in the sense that it's a bit like that old, probably apocryphal story about the, you know, the frog that dies in the boiling water and doesn't realize its water is boiling until it actually I mean, there's some there's something in that I think that, that reflects your your own experience there is that we just get so caught up in the headlong dash of daily life, we're surrounded by everybody else doing the same thing, that we you know, we just suppress any signs, usually from our body, often from our minds and emotions as well, that something's wrong, right? That something's seriously wrong. And we just go to hurtling along until one day, either our body or our mind or both just cannot take the pace anymore. And then, then you've got some kind of burnout or a physical problem or uh, depression or, or whatever it is. Of course, many of these things now are, you know, the, the the numbers of people suffering them is going up, you know, pretty sharply. And I think that's a sign that we've just lost our compass, right, as a, as a society. And I think that, of course, we can't go back to living like hunter-gatherers, but we can remember that that's where we came from, right, and try and incorporate some of that rhythm, maybe some of those priorities, right? I mean, the hunter-gatherers may do with enough you know, they they had the word enough meant something to them, right? You you had enough to eat. They weren't trying to build more and build up stock portfolios and take over other. You know, um, it was and, and yet we never seem to have enough. And I think that's another part of the problem here is that, and you see it with um, obesity, right? You know, we in a, in a hunter-gatherer world, in a, in a world of scarcity. Our bodies were built for that world, right? We weren't built for a world where there's a Krispy Kreme donut on every corner, right? So, what happens? We don't stop eating. We end up with massive obesity everywhere. Same with social media. We're, we're hardwired to seek out social connection. But that was in a hunter gatherer world when you weren't carrying a weapon of mass distraction around in your pocket and an Instagram feed at every turn. And yet, now we are. And what do we do? We just find it so hard to switch off. And everybody will recognize that scenario where you sit down and think, you yeah, know, I'll check out social media for a bit you're there an hour later and you don't even know where, where, where it went or what it meant because it meant nothing. Um, so, yeah, yes. <laughs> we we, 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 need, we need to channel more of our hunter-gatherer selves, I think.
1: Well, I think as a species, what we have forgotten is that we are very adaptable. And if it wasn't for our adaptability, we would have no longer been here. We would have died out already with the dinosaurs, right? So we are still here. And the reason we are here is because we're so adaptable. And just because you're doing something and you seem to be able to get through it doesn't necessarily mean it's good for you. One of the things that I recognize, and I'm not saying it's easy, especially when you run an online business, for example, is to put those elements aside. Like you said, you know, not spending so much time on social media and and things like that. And the good thing about it is you do have apps on your phone that can track that, right? So you can see, if you've actually decreased your time or not. But it's not easy to do that. And when you find yourself constantly reaching for that phone, it's in that moment that you realize that actually you're addicted.
2: Yeah. And it's in that moment you've got to create a a spark of awareness, right? I think that's a lack of awareness. And again, this comes down to speed, I think. The same metaphor that what we lose when we get stuck in fast forward is just an awareness of of what's going on, how we're experiencing it, what what effect it's having on us. We just get through the moment, right? We just get through onto the next thing, and then we're already thinking about three things down the track. And it really, so much of recalibrating comes down to building in those moments, those circuit breaker moments where you say, hang on, I'm my hand is reaching almost instinctively for my phone. Stop. Why? Do I need to look at my phone now? Would Should I be... be be giving my attention to whatever it is I'm doing that has nothing to do with my phone and, and just inserting those little moments of, of awareness, right? And, and asking the question. And, and I think that, that makes a, it's a very small thing to do in a sense, but it can have immense payoffs, you know, if you get it right and stick with it because it does take time. You won't, no one achieves the intercom and the Dalai Lama tomorrow morning, right? It doesn't, even the Dalai Lama is probably still working on it, right? Uh, So it's a process, I think. And and in many ways, we are actually chemically, I think they've shown by studies that we're almost chemically addicted to that distraction of the phone. So no one comes off heroin in a a day, right? It's a process of weaning yourself off and always being aware
1: that you could get drawn back in and, and that kind of thing, so. So talking about paying attention, what is your take on mindfulness? Because I think that's one way to become more aware of your habitual reactions to things, just reaching out for the phone without giving it a second thought. When you practice mindfulness, you're able to catch yourself between that stimulus and response. And in that moment of pause, you can look at it more clearly and decide to take a different action.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think mindfulness is is a luminous tool (laughs) for getting, getting yourself back into the right groove, right? The right speed, the right pace. And it comes down to awareness. I mean, I often, I mean, the whole mindful revolution came after I was on the trail talking about slow. And I remember thinking when it first appeared, this is kind of the same thing pretty much in a lot of ways, it's just different language, right? When I talk about slow, I'm really talking with a capital S, I'm talking about a mindset, about being present in the moment, you know, doing one thing at a time, giving each thing task your full attention and, and the time it deserves. And that's really just another way of saying being mindful, right? So yeah, I'm, I'm completely on team mindful, team slow. I think they're part of the same, part of the same outfit, definitely. And yeah, I, I, and, and the very fact that we've had a mindfulness boom shows the crying need out there to bring back some
1: awareness, right, into our lives. So as we both get older, Let's talk about how to age better. Mm. What advice would you give? Because the world is, if it looks the way that it looks right now, it's gonna. I just, I can't even imagine what it's gonna look like in 20 years. Yeah, gosh, who can?
2: Uh, how do we? Well, I would start by just c- not calling you out, but just calling attention to how you phrase the Ooh, question. Sure. You said now, now that we're both getting <laughs> older we are all getting older. Right? <laughs> when we were 21, we were both getting older. But, and, but I think in a, I, I call attention to that because I think it shines a light on, on the ageism in our culture that we think of aging as something that old people do, right? It's something that you, you're rolling along in your salad days until, I don't know, what, 35? Where are we drawing the line now? And then you fall off a cliff, right? And then it's all downhill and everything gets worse. Physically, mentally, emotionally, you become less attractive, less productive, less creative, less fun, less happy. All this stuff, and actually, a lot of that stuff is not true. I mean, what what I found when I wrote my most recent book, Boulder, it was that so many of the myths, the toxic myths that we have about aging, are actually wrong. Right? You know, people do. You know, the, you know. For instance, people follow a, a U-shaped happiness curve. We tend to be happier and feel more satisfied with our lives. in in after the age of 55 you know creativity goes on until the very end productivity goes up as we age with uh jobs that rely on social acumen because we tend to get better socially as we get older you know there's there's so many things that um you know we get better seeing the big picture etc etc so i i guess how do we age better well first of all we take down the ageist industrial complex with the cult of youth, which is constantly telling us that we need to feel ashamed, afraid, guilty, (laughs) and disgusted about aging, right? So so we need to start tackling that. We need to, I would say we need to tackle it with, you know, public public, um, awareness campaigns, changing laws, uh, being honest and open about our age rather than lying about it. Um, And of course, stopping using ageist language, all those phrases like, Senior moment, wrong side of forty, over the hill, feeling my age, showing my—all these things that just reinforce this idea that the second half of your life sucks, right? If we can just stop using language like that, it'll make a big difference. But as a final kickoff, uh, I would just say, you know, there's actually people are sitting thinking, how can I age better? A lot of those things I just mentioned were quite sort of macro. There are things at the micro level we can all do to make sure, whatever age we are, that we age better. Number one, of course, would be, you know, eating, eating a healthy diet, Um, having strong social connections makes us well and age well, whatever age we are, Uh, exposing ourselves to novelty, you know, always opening new doors, trying out new things, not getting stuck in a a groove, hugely important for, for, um, for aging well, having a purpose in life, some kind of like the Japanese talk about Ikigai, something that gets you out of bed in the morning. It can be anything from work to family. Um so you know there's things like all those things are out there that we can all pull those levers at any stage of life
1: so that the next stage will be better than it would have been if we hadn't pulled those levers. I think part of the disconnect is also that in our Western culture we don't value the more senior amongst us. And you know, just when I'm walking around and I just see I know you don't like that term, but it, we see older people, right? People in their seventies and, and so on. The no, older, I'm okay. fine with. Oh, oh, older okay. is a good yeah. word. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> so older people amongst us in their seventies. And I always think to myself, what a shame, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to just sit and spend some time with them and listen to their stories? Because you, Could you imagine what they would be able to tell us and what we would be able to learn? And I just think, you know, people have forgotten that and they've left almost as an outcast in society which is really sad to see, again, coming not to harp on about hunter-gatherers, but in those times, that would never have happened. You know, The older people amongst that tribe were valued and seen for the valuable resource that they are to the very end.
2: But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think that one of the, 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 the sad facts of the modern world is that we have walled off the generations from each other so that we live in age silos. I mean, I think of my neighborhood here in London, uh, Battersea. It's like everybody is... It's like been, it's been demographically cleansed. Everybody is basically 30 to 45. It's just, you know, um, and and we know from the research and we know from pretty much everything that mixing up the generations is good for everyone. It's good for older people. It's good for younger people feel happier. They feel more connected. They learn more. There's a sharing of uh, wisdom and knowledge, not only from older generations down, but from younger generations up. So a, a hugely important piece of this puzzle for building society where people can age well not only age well but feel you know age better but feel better about aging is by is to bring the generations back together in the workplace in leisure activities classes everything and, and one of my worries with the covid epidemic of course is that older people are more vulnerable to covid-19 and that has started i think in some quarters to Maybe drive a little bit of a wedge between the generations, as some young people say. Well, you know what, I I I, I want to get back out there, right? And who cares if a bunch of old, older people die, right? I mean, not, not putting a crude spin on it, but I think there's some of that is going on. So there is a danger there that we could perhaps even move the generations further apart. But I don't know. It, it, as I as we get deeper and deeper into this pandemic, and it becomes more and more apparent that everybody is vulnerable in one way or another. You know, even if you're not sort of dying, you may. Get sick and suffer long-term uh, consequences that that will actually come back closer together, and we'll start to to realize that. Especially when you look at the the, the massacres that's occurred in care homes around the world, right? That people will say, you know, for, for the people who haven't managed to age in their own homes, in that segment, a minority, but an important minority nonetheless, that have been put in these homes, is that really the way we want those people to be spending the final years of their lives? And so, I think big questions are on the table now. I hope we come up with the right answers.
1: So I know we kind of hinted to this, but how, how can we feel better about aging overall? I mean, what, what kind of, I mean, you've given some tips, but maybe let's yeah. expand on that a little bit more.
2: Well, I think um, one thing we have, we talked about social media earlier. It, I think social media is a, a wonderful tool for tackling ageism because it's put into the hands of people around the world. I mean, let's face it, millions of people every day around the world are uploading mm-hmm. photos Uh, photos and videos of their version of being I don't know 39 49 59 69 89 109 and guess what those versions look very different from the downbeat dreary stereotype that you're over the hill at 40 or you know finished at 40 wrong side of 50 all that you know these are people more and more are going out there and taking life by the scruff of the neck you know they're learning a windsurf in their seventies they're running marathons in their eighties. And, and when you go on social media and you see other people tearing down the age of stereotypes, you know, thumbing their nose at the cult of youth it becomes a whole lot easier for you <laughs> to do the same, right? It kind of lifts that terrible weight that I think a lot of us carry around on our shoulders, that weight of fear and shame, because you think, you know what, I'll, I'll give you just one quick example. Not long ago, uh, I do a lot. I mean, I do, I'm a big sports guy. I do a lot of planks, like planking, right? as part of my routine. And, and I, I, about a few months ago, a, a a guy broke the planking world planking record. I don't know if he saw this. He, it was, he, he, yeah, he planked for eight hours, 15 minutes, and <laughs> 15 seconds. You think, wow, that is one heck of a long plank. Now, I, I'm pretty happy if I get to eight minutes. Uh, I'm 52. This guy was 62. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should aspire to plank for eight hours at 62 years old. Most of us won't get anywhere near that. But the very fact that a guy 10 years older than me can plank for eight hours, 15 minutes, that, that, that gives me a kind of lightness. It makes me think, you know what? It may not, always, it may not necessarily be downhill. Of course, you know, so I'm, changes in my body. I'm, you know, I play hockey a lot. I'm not as fast as I used to be in some ways. But in some other ways, I'm a better player, you know. So I, I just think that seeing those role models, because role models matter, and the more we see and thanks to the social media we are seeing more and more of them it just becomes easier for the rest of us to slip out of that straitjacket of ageism and the cult of youth and to you know move into a new world where chronological age doesn't have the same power to limit and define us right i think increasingly we're moving into a world where what defines you is not how old you are on paper but the choices you make the food you cook the art that moves you, the music that makes you dance, the sports you do, the travel you like to indulge in, the politics you espouse, the work you do, that's what's going to define you more and more now. Not whether you're 42, 52, or 102, right?
1: No, I think that's very valuable. So as we come to the end of this, call, I wanted to ask you just to end off with something that you feel is really important, something that you want to leave everybody with, your final message.
2: Um, Yeah, I'll, I'll leave you with a an African proverb that I've always been fond of that kind of went out of my mind and has come back to me a lot recently with this COVID moment. And the proverb goes like this. It says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together.
0: To learn more about the art of self reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z dot com.